Welcome to the Dimensions book series by K. Arwen. An extraordinary tale of an inner journey and a battle of good against evil. In this podcast, the heroine Kaya tells her own story from book one, The Awakening. Our journey begins on the Scottish Isle of Skye. Parallel realities interconnect and interweave. Step in and enter Dimensions. Kaya here. Welcome to episode two of my tale. If you remember from the last episode, I'm I'm still down in Oxford trying to get my article finished on past life. And Lena, the editor from the magazine, is piling on the pressure because the deadline is on Friday. But we left the story last time up in the Scottish Highlands in the 18th century Scotland where Iana, the water kelpie, had left the water and was running along the beach with her kelpie water horse, Pendragon. And Owen had been leaving wildflowers and a white shell necklace for her until the day that they actually met. And they got married and fell in love and lived happily ever after. Meribeth leapt up from where she had been sitting at her aunt's feet. She kissed the elderly lady on her cheek. I love that story. But how can I finish the tale properly, Barn, if you finish it for me? Morag replied. The young girl laughed. But it's my favourite. I know the ending. The water kelpie leaves her watery world to be with her lover and the water horse, the Hippocramphus, remains in the loch. And Iana, the water mermaid, has to forget her watery origins in order to stay human. But she always feels the pull of the water and she would gaze out across the loch for hours searching for something but she could never remember quite what. And her lover never reminded her in fear that she would leave and return once again to her watery world and the sea life that she craves. Meg was standing by the fire and she felt a rush of energy through her body and she shuddered. She picked up the iron poker and stoked the fire with vigour. Come on, she said, as sparks flew and the fire sprang back into a new lease of life. Morag looked across the room, wistfully. 
Are you all right, Meg? Yeah, just feeling the cold today. Aye, there's a cold chill. The wind's picking up, a Vasanti wind, the wind that brings change. Well, I jolly well hope it's going to be good change this time, Meg replied. Meg was wary of the wind. She was one of those people who was in alignment with the elements and their moods. Some would say sensitive. Others, intuitive. But either way, Meg felt the messages and the impact of the elements. She felt the warnings, the stories and the guidance that they carried. So much so that the locals had learnt to trust her perceptions. Well, lass, change isn't necessarily good or bad, it just is. It's what we make of it that makes it good or bad, Morag replied. You're right, Morag, Meg said, returning to face her. She brushed down her dress and tied her shawl tighter around her shoulders. I just wish I didn't feel so uneasy about things, that's all. She held Morag's gaze for a moment and then turned her attention back to the fire. The flickering flames roared and she felt the warmth soak into her face and her body began to relax. Morag's story resonated deeply within her, but she wasn't sure why. She had been connected to the village for as long as she could remember, but she hadn't been born there. She was suffering from some sort of amnesia and had actually forgotten her origins. But the villagers had been kind, had taken her in and accepted her as one of them. She couldn't even remember where she'd first met Morag's son, Owen. But met him she had and she was completely in love with him. They were to be married but as of yet it hadn't been the right time. Not that it really mattered to her. She loved him completely, with an intensity that was not experienced by many, it seemed. It was as though they were two souls woven together, becoming one, inseparable one. They both felt the connection that they shared, and it didn't resonate with either of them to be parted. But she and Owen had to dance around one another all the time. He was head of the clan and the villagers looked to him to keep the clan strong. And because of this, he was often away, travelling across the Scottish Highlands, meeting with the other clans' leaders. But she, on the other hand, stayed on the Isle of Skye. I mean, she was always busy. Being a healer, she was always in demand to treat somebody's ailments. Some people called her a witch. Perhaps she was. But what was a witch, anyway? In her case, simply a person who communed with energy and who brewed magic. From the seaweeds, the herbs and the roots that grew along the shoreline and in the forest. She found herself scowling at the flames as she stirred the pot of broth that was hanging over the fire. She was making the broth for Morag. Morag was Owen's mother. She was the oldest member of the clan and although she was too proud to admit it, her health was failing. 
The flames under the pot flickered and danced, energised and free, and Meg felt herself drawn into the patterns that they formed, seeing the salamanders, the fire spirits, weaving their magic. The fire appeared to melt away and was replaced by the vision of a dark mist. The mist crept through the air like a thick fog, engulfing anything that was in its way. Meg felt as though she were in the mist, lost, unable to see a way forward. She saw the image of a sword with leaves engraved on the hilt. And then the image changed and she saw silhouettes of figures within the mist, tall, strange beings that felt evil and cruel. She heard a roar and saw a great dragon sending a burst of flames from its mouth and as it did, the dragon's fire became the real fire and Meg found herself staring into the flames as the salamanders stopped sending her the vision and continued their usual dance over the burnt logs. Meg caught sight of the the fire and looking across at Morag, Morag's face looked concerned and she stared into Meg's eyes and concluded the reason for the disturbance that she saw there. He'll be back soon, lassie. Meg shook her head. No, it's the flames, Morag. She looked across at Morag as Morag pulled a tartan rub up over her legs. The flames speak of ill tidings. Something's not right. The elderly lady looked concerned. Go and find your mother, Maribeth, she said to her niece. She'll be needing you soon, no doubt. Maribeth gathered her shawl and flung it across her shoulders. You'll not be needing anything else, aunt? No, thank you kindly, and thank your mother too. The oatmeal cake is most welcome. Maribeth smiled and gave her a kiss. See you later then. She crossed the room, gave Meg a hug and then left the cottage. Morag turned her attention to Mag, who was still staring at the fire as though in a trance. What did you see? Was it the same vision that you had before, the one that you've been writing about? I saw a dragon. That was the same. And the strange beings, Meg replied without turning away from the fire. But now... I can see the loch and the empty houses. All the people have gone. There was a pause. Morag was concerned, but she wasn't going to let Meg see that. Oh, it's nothing, I'm sure. You never do so well when Owen's away. Come. She indicated a bottle of whiskey that was next to her on the tabletop. Have a wee dram with me. It'll warm you and calm your nerves. Meg turned to face Morag and smiled. She shouldn't say such things to her. Morag was perceptive but was frail and the last thing that Meg wanted to do was to worry the elderly lady and make her feel worse. She sighed, ladled some soup into a small bowl and crossed over to the table. You're right, I'm sure it's nothing. She placed the bowl next to Morag and picked up the whiskey bottle. She'd no sooner poured two small glasses of the golden liquid when the door flew open and Owen entered, carrying something wrapped in a cloth. 
you're back. Owen grinned. I flew like the wind. He leapt over to where Meg was standing and swung her round in delight. Wild horses nor Englishmen wouldn't keep me away from you. Meg laughed in relief. Aye, I told you that you'd be back soon, laddie. But what kept you away so long this time? Morag asked. Meg, pour the man a wee dram. He looks half frozen. I'm fine now I'm back, Owen said with a grin. The McIntyre gave me this for my trouble look. He unwrapped the cloth to reveal a short sword with an intricately carved hilt that looked like it was made from metal leaves woven together. Meg gasped, suddenly feeling faint, as she recognised the sword from her vision. She stared at the blade and then looked up at Morag, her face draining of colour. What's wrong? Owen asked. It's the sword. I've seen it before. Well, let's pray there isn't any trouble coming, Morag interrupted with strength and a conviction, as though willing Meg's vision not to come true. Owen threw his mother a glance and then looked deep into Meg's eyes. You can't stop the future, Meg. You know that. You can only live in the moment. And in this moment, it's all good. Yes, yes, it is, Meg replied, kissing him on the cheek. I got these for you, Owen took a leather pouch from his sporran and passed Meg a a leather thread with three metal beads on it. They were each carved with an intricate design of fern and flowers. They're really pretty, Meg smiled and tied the beads around her neck, along with the necklace of white shells that she was already wearing. She felt Owen's burning eyes into her and caught his gaze. She'd known him for how long? It seemed like forever. Yet she could never remember when they first met. It was all a distant memory that was somewhere in the back of her head that sank away from her when she tried to grasp it. Still, did it really matter? All she knew was, was that she loved him more than anything. She sighed and brought her attention back to the time and the fact that evening was drawing in. I must go, she said, draining the glass of whiskey and putting it back on the table. Well, thanks for coming to visit and thanks for the remedy, Morag replied. Oh, it's no bother. Glad to help. Now rest and don't go straining those eyes of yours with all that needlework. Morag chuckled. Now don't you fuss over me any more. Get going before the evening sets in. You haven't got a lantern on that boat of yours, have you? How are you going to cross the lock in the dark? That's what I want to know. Meg smiled and kissed the elderly lady on the cheek. I'll be fine. I can see in the dark, she jested. Tut, I reckon you can, came the reply. Owen held the door as Meg stepped across the threshold. I'll walk down to the jetty with you, he said, following her out the door and onto the path that led down to the loch. It was a blowy night and Meg fastened her cloak in a knot to prevent the wind from blowing it away. She took a deep breath and started down the stone path. It won't be this way forever, Meg, Owen said. She turned to face him. I know, but it's my visions. They speak of trouble. I hear your words and I want to believe you, but I sense another path forming. I see. She paused her face in a frown, remembering the images in the fire. What? What do you see? 
I see persecution and the images are becoming more frequent. Even now at your mother's, I saw images in the fire and it isn't good, Owen. It's not a good omen. Owen looked uncomfortable for a moment. He knew enough of Meg's perception and seeing and knew it had to be trusted. She had a gift. She was special. But she had forgotten just how special she was. He couldn't tell her, not now, not ever. He'd made his promise that day on the beach and he had to keep it, else risk losing her forever. How could he tell her that she was Iana from his mother's story? How could he tell Meg that she had chosen to live on the land and if she were ever reminded where she was from, she could go mad with the longing and regret of the world she'd chosen to leave behind? For everybody knew that was what happened to Kelpies who chose a land life. It was woven in the stories throughout the clans. Kelpies went mad with the need to reconnect to their old world and unable to return would even kill themselves in attempt to shed their landform and return to the sea. That day on the beach, Meg had made him promise not to remind her. That day when she had finally chosen to leave the water world behind to be with him. Knowing of the danger, she had made him promise not to keep that memory alive but allow it to rest. Her hippocampus had cast its magic and as she had changed into a woman's body for that final time, it had left out, let out a cry of grief and then swum back into the sea. It was there now watching over her. Owen knew that. And Meg had retained her passion and her love for the water. But the extent of that connection was buried deep into her subconscious. I don't know, Meg, he said in a whisper, looking into her eyes. You're being shown something. But perhaps it's a possibility and not a chain of events that are set in stone. Maybe more of a warning. Either way, it isn't good, Owen. Promise me that you'll be careful when you travel next. I'm leaving tomorrow, but only for a few days. They reached the shoreline and walked towards the wooden jetty where Meg had secured her rowing boat. Stepping into it, she pulled out the oars from where she'd stored them under the wooden seat. Owen smiled. Meg loved this rowing boat and Owen knew better than to offer to row her home. He'd only offered once and the offer had been rejected with such a passion he dared not offer again. Because that was the nature of Kelpies, fiercely independent. Meg caught the look on his face and wondered what Owen was thinking about. What is it? she inquired. Owen snapped himself from his thoughts. Um, nothing. You be careful rowing out on the lock the dark set well in. She grinned. I'll be fine. I've told you before. I can see in the dark, she mocked. Yet in every word of jest, there is an always an underlying truth. She waved a farewell and began to pull on the oars, leaving the lock shore behind. She watched Owen leave the jetty and walk along the beach, looking out across the water after her and felt a familiarity from the vision as though she'd been here before. Deja vu? She couldn't place any memory. 
The waves from the wind on the loch were blowing her off course and she let the search from the memory go from her mind. She had to concentrate. The wind was picking up and out here on the loch it was a force to be reckoned with. She grew hot with the effort of rowing. Come on, Meg, she said to herself. Come on. The mists began to swirl and the waves around the boat seemed larger. Meg pulled on the oars, doing her best to keep the boat steady. Yet the elements did not appear to be on her side. It started to rain and the wind blew the rain so that it felt like bullets hitting against her face. She screwed up her eyes in an attempt to see the far shore of the loch but in vain. The mist and the rain was all too much and instead of the shore all Meg could see were the waves that seemed to be getting bigger by the second threatening to fill her boat with water and sink it. Oh, for the love of God, she said as one wave rose even higher at the brow of the boat. Yet as she watched, rather than hitting the boat, the wave changed direction. Now the wave travelled with her, almost, it seemed, carrying the boat along, easing her effort and helping her to reach the shore. She strained her eyes. She could have sworn in the wind that the wave took on the form of a white horse. A kelpie if ever there was, she muttered to herself. The wind had grown wild and she tore across the lock now, seemingly carried by the wave. She found herself laughing in delight, feeling wild and free, and watched the white wave in front of her, pulling her forward. And she could have sworn that the seemingly horse's head turned and stared at her, enjoying the wind as much as she did. But in the next instant, the form had melted back into the sea and Meg found her boat being propelled towards the shore with such a force that she had to pull back on the oars to stop the boat crashing against a jagged rock. Oh, hell, she muttered. That was a little too close for comfort. She got out of the boat and pulled it up onto the shore to its mooring and tying it with the ropes that were there, looked back out across the water. Thank you, she whispered to the wind and to the water. I love you. For a moment, the waves on the lock rose and she caught a glimpse of the head of a white horse again. She did what she habitually did and picked up a white shell from the beach and walking down to the water's edge, kissed the shell before throwing it into the water. For you, she whispered. Yet today that didn't feel enough. Meg reached up to her necklace and took off the string of white shells that she always wore. Owen had given her the three beads. She could wear those now. She placed the string of white shells right next to the water's edge. She knew that she was being watched. Her instincts told her so. But she couldn't see anything or anyone in the water. She smiled anyway and blew a kiss to the seemingly empty space and then made her way up to the small cottage that was set in the trees at the edge of the loch. Later that night, she sat at her wooden table by the fire. It was a tiny one-room cottage, but Owen had made a screen that split the living area from her bed. She lit the half-burnt candle that was set on the table and opened her journal. Her journal was perhaps her most treasured possession. Owen had brought it back from one of his travels. 
It was bound in a leather with a cord that tied around the middle to keep it shut. She loved to write in it. Writing was her solace. Meg would record her thoughts, Morag stories, and also the strange symbols that often came into her mind. The symbols sang to her like whispers on the breeze, pulling at her to understand their meaning, but she never did. She began to write down her vision from the fire earlier, remembering the mist and the strange figures clearly. She frowned. Even now she could sense the undercurrents, a sinister foreboding feeling that made the hairs on the back of her neck prickle. She shivered and altered her mindset by concentrating on her writing, only stopping as the candle burnt out. And then, closing her journal and wrapping it carefully in its oilskin cloth that she used to protect the leather, she crossed the room, pulled back the hanging and got into bed. Travelling back through into the modern day. Back with Kaya. I pause for my journaling and, and I cross to the kitchen and grab a few grapes from the fruit bowl. I often think that it's kind of strange how I write in my spare time. I mean, I'm a professional writer and yet still words are my therapy. When I enter the realm of my journal... It's as though the entire outside world melts away and I can confide and get emotional, disclose my dreams and just be me on those blank pages. Those blank pages, are, they're like my friends. I've also developed this gift of automatic writing and when I'm absorbed in my journaling, inspiration flows through me. I pop a grape into my mouth and go back to the table in the journal to pick up from where I'd left off. Spiritual traditions and quantum law state that thoughts create your reality, I write. The energy of thought literally shapes matter and as such ultimately manifests, forming what you experience within your external life. Gosh, that's deep. And if perspectives create your reality and what you perceive you receive, it follows that in order to change your reality, then you have to change what you think. Raising your awareness is key. Recognising that you are the sole controller of your circumstances. I stop writing. As memories and past recollections of past relationship experience start flickering through my mind as though a dam's burst. I always feel clearer and getting it as it were as I write but the memories they come bubbling back up. I mean this time for instance I remember I remember how the cycle of abuse started for me as, as if it was yesterday. My first boyfriend well he abused me because I wouldn't have sex with him Whereas the second boyfriend, he abused me because I did. So that set me up for this relationship pattern of abuse. I may as well have had abuse tattooed on my forehead. I remember eventually I went to see a psychiatrist. I can see her now sitting across her desk shuffling papers. I'd felt sick and wanted to run for the door. 
And I made up my mind on the spot that I wasn't going to tell her anything. She looked at me over her glasses and asked me if I heard voices in my head. Alarm bells rang. For the fact is, I do, and I did then. Only at that point in my life, I wasn't listening. Why? I remember asking. I was then told that there was a a treatment that would send an electric current through my brain to balance it and to shock me back to normality. Great. Some support. She wants to fry my brain, I remember thinking. Well, that was enough for me. I left her office, but the patterns of self-blame and of there being something wrong with me was reinforced. I inadvertently brought into victim, along with the feeling of fear and seeming lack of support. The next relationship was a similar story, but with different players. Seriously, I need self-inventory is required. I pushed the journal into the bottom of my rucksack. I took to the habit of keeping my rucksack packed long ago in preparation for a quick getaway. It's all part of my circle of circumstances. But despite accepting that I have to make the break away from these old restraints in order to be truly free and expand into a new way of being, I was finding that, or I am finding that, breaking patterns and moving forward isn't always easy and it takes a lot of courage. And I still haven't pulled on the courage and taken the plunge and and left Dick. But still, I know I will one day, although that's what I keep telling myself. Deep inside, I've got this feeling, uh, you know, of how a, a, a real relationship could be. Like the couple in the relationship I've been interviewing for my past life article. I mean, they adore each other. You can see it in their eyes. A soul relationship must be where two empowered individuals share life experiences with no dependency in a needy way. Yeah, sure, they need to be together, but neither partner tries to control or undermine the other one in order to feel secure. And there's certainly no fear or aggression. You will leave him sooner than you think. The voice is as clear as though the person standing right next to me. I jump and look around, half expecting to see someone standing behind me by the kitchen door, but there's nobody there. Who are you? I ask, wondering if I've imagined the voice. There's a pause and the voice speaks again. I'm your guide. My name is Metamorphos. Stay strong. The dimensions are shifting. I start. It's one thing to hear a voice. It's another to ask a question and get a reply. Yet, multi-dimensions. She did, after all, believe they existed. I've I've thought they've existed for a long time. I feel a wave of excitement and wait expectantly to see if Metamorphos would say anything else. But there's nothing but silence. 
I shake my head and, grabbing the doglies from the hall, I head out for the yard to call the dogs. There's one thing I've learnt. When my head gets full, if writing doesn't work, or if I'm writing and I get stuck in a knot, my only answer is to get out in the elements. I breathe in the wind and I breathe in the rain and I, I feel the earth beneath my feet as I run and I run with the dogs and I just feel connected. I feel alive and I feel free. Perhaps if I run, perhaps I'll get some answers. I look forward to seeing you at the next episode of my story from Dimensions The Awakening. And if you'd like to follow Kaya's blog, it's krwin.co.uk. And for more information on the author, check out kayamia.co.uk or centeredresonance.com. Until next time, I leave you all now with some Atlantean light language.
I look forward to seeing you at the next episode.